This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Welcome back, everyone, to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm Brandon, and of course, I'm, as always, I'm always joined by F. Scott Field. And today we have a really special guest brought to you from the University of Saskatchewan. And today we have the one and only leader from the Strength Rebel Alliance, I'll add, uh, Dr. Scotty Butcher. Now, for those who don't know who he is, Scotty Butcher is an associate professor of physical therapy at the University of Saskatchewan with research focusing on strength training and high-intensity interval training using traditional and multimodal methodology in a variety of clinical and healthy populations. He is also the co-founder and co-owner of Strength Rebels, providing health and fitness professionals educational seminars, courses, and resources for strength and high-intensity interval training methodology. Now, first of all, Dr. Scotty, thank you so much for coming on, and you know, I can't tell you how happy we are and thrilled we are to have you on. I know I kept your bio relatively brief, but you know, was there anything that I left out of there that you'd like our audience to know about you before we start? Uh, n no, you went through my whole CV. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I get pretty good, but I'm, I, I, what I do want to say is thanks for inviting me to come on guys. I'm, uh, I'm super happy to, uh, to be able to come on and talk with you guys. You guys are doing some good stuff. Yeah. Thanks, man. I have a, uh, I guess it's kind of a random question regarding, uh, our neighbors just North of the border there. What, like, is it possible, right? Have you had any students come through uh, that have gone on to practice in the United States or vice versa so, uh, that you've seen some students from the U.S. come and practice in Canada. And if so, what is that process like? Do you know uh, like uh, what it entails to get licensed uh, up in Canada? Well, yeah, it's um, uh, we've seen uh, I, I've met a few U.S. Uh, uh, grads that have come come up here. Um, but but uh, I want to say that's before the implementation of the DPT. So we're talking obviously a few years ago. Um, there's there's definitely a lot of students that uh, will graduate from our programs and then come down to to the States. That's for sure. And then so they, they would basically have to uh, uh, undergo your your licensing process and and that. So the process up here is is relatively simple um, it, which is I think similar to you guys but we have a, a a nationwide national exam I believe you guys have state exams is that correct well we, ours is a national exam but it uh, the laws vary by state so yeah same mm -hmm. exam no matter what state you're in but then uh, there each state has different uh, processes for getting your license in it Right. Well, I guess that'd be fairly similar to what uh, what you've got up here. So we've got our we've got our national exam that uh, that anybody coming out of a physical therapy program would write now. If you're coming from uh, the states, usually most programs are are relatively well known to the alliance up here that uh, that regulates that. So it's uh, um, you know the the process of getting the the program that you've graduated from and your credentials uh, authenticated and 
you know, basically determined to be equivalent or, or close to the type of education that we would get is, is relatively simple. I mean, it's a, it's a bit different if you're coming from, uh, a country that's say overseas or something like that. But, uh, um, yeah, so they, they, there's a bit of a residency period and then they write their exam and, uh, they become a resident until they can pass their, uh, their practical exam. The, so there's a written and a, and a practical component, of course. And, and then, um, yeah, then they can get their full license. Interesting. No, that's very interesting. And especially with, I don't know if you've heard, Dr. Scotty, with the new um, issue that they're bringing up now with the, the APTA here in the U.S., the Clinical Education Task Force is thinking about making some pretty big changes um, to the way clinical education, DPT education is structured down here. And I don't know. I mean, I know we've talked with that at a few guests and it's, it's very interesting. And I'm just kind of curious, have, have you heard kind of of that task force and kind of what's going on? Uh, you know, just peripherally, I, I haven't paid too, too much attention just because I've got, uh, um, a few other things going on and, and, uh, obviously it doesn't necessarily affect directly what we're doing. And, and, uh, is it, we, we have our, uh, our qualification that would call someone a physical therapy resident. It's not through a, a formal residency like you guys have. We, uh, uh, once they, once they pass the exam, they have a period of time before they actually can get some, uh, uh to get their credentialing. So we can, our students can come out of their, their PT program and up, up here they're all MPTs so they can come out of their MPT program and and work with a supervised license um, but it's not a formal residency it's just a you know sort of a supervisor type agreement and and uh, so there's no real uh, specialty uh, format that we'd go through until you're very much post-grad and, and our special specialization is a bit later so um, it's uh, it's different enough that uh, that I haven't been paying too much attention to be honest yeah. Scotty, could you uh, could you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a PhD? Could you tell us that process? Yeah, absolutely. I don't mind doing that at all. Uh, so, pretty much like anyone else coming out of uh, high school and getting into university and and thinking about uh, professions and that, you know, I I was into a lot of sports and uh, had obviously a lot of injuries and and uh, saw saw PT and uh, sort of fell in love with the idea of being a PT and uh, but of course I came into school wanting to be a, a sports physical therapist and and uh, work primarily orthopedics and that and that was um, th that was the, the 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 where I where it basically started and that took me through right into my uh, my first job in orthopedics and I, I did a lot of sports coverage and um, what I what I ended up doing um, within about three years of graduating is I, I went and did a master's degree in a in an area uh, it was on core stability um, at the time and uh, core stability in athletes and and the reason I did it was not necessarily from a research perspective but to to gain a clinical knowledge and so so this is actually when I graduated this is this is how you know old I am is that it was actually a bachelor's program of physical therapy that I graduated from so so it wasn't even the MPT let alone the DPT but uh, so so went on to do a clinical master's which was a research-based master's but I did it for clinical reasons and then took a job in sports then had this weird little twist in life where I ended up moving and uh, because I was uh, getting engaged uh, to my wife at the time and I moved back to uh, back home here to Saskatoon and took something that was uh, uh, took a job that was completely outside of my realm of what I thought then my expertise and it was in pulmonary rehab and and uh, the I was doing exercise program design for the for the organization that I was working for um, in in sports prior to that 
And so for me, this was, you know, program management position. It was, it was as well implementing direct exercise programs for, for patients with different lung diseases. And so, so there was a close enough fit to what I wanted that I, that I took it on, but I never really expected it to go anywhere, to be honest. But, uh, but honestly, I fell in love with uh, working with older adults and I fell in love with the idea of improving and enhancing rehab based on the models that were out there that I had been, that I had obviously looked into as I was taking this job. And and uh, so I worked there for about three years and decided to go do a PhD in Edmonton, uh, where the uh, where the Oilers play, and did uh, did a combination of strength and conditioning, exercise physiology, and pulmonary medicine, which is one of the weirdest combinations you can probably do. And uh, and so so finished my PhD and uh, came back home here to Saskatoon and uh, been working here ever since. And um, my my research career has really started off with with looking at uh, the good quality testing and training practices in patients with lung disease um, but uh, but I've since branched off and and have done quite a bit on uh, uh, older adults in general and then clinical populations and some other side work on biomechanics and things like that so anyway that's uh, that's the long-winded version no that's interesting man and you know I'm kind of curious dr. Scotty what based on the research that you've kind of done now regarding those things what's some of the biggest lessons or things that you're learning that you're like whoa I never would have thought that or what are some of the big things that you've learned as a result of kind of the recent research that you've done yeah or well, there's I mean there's there's tons I mean you, you know if you're not learning you're sort of fading away right so I mean you you know any any time you go and read and read a research article you you think about um, you know the process of EBP and how it all fits into the big scheme of things so I'm always looking for ways to change and uh, the, the biggest well let me, I'd say there's two big big things one would be in the area of chronic disease and older adults and and um, you know my my current focus uh, which it wasn't always this way was is really to to think about the the importance and de the development of whole body strength in in these populations and and uh, what that can do compared with what we typically would do in rehab which would be much more of an aerobic model a lower intensity uh, training model which uh, which is quite limited um, after at least the first you know four to six weeks of uh, of getting someone off the couch so you know, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing and that, that revelation there in terms of, um, um, me doing that and, and coming to that, uh, coming to that conclusion has really directed where I've been going, but I'd say that's probably the biggest one. And then the, another side one that I'd throw in there too is, uh, is the importance of the core stability. Cause of course I, as I said, I did my master's in core stability and, um, not to say that, uh, you know, the core, however you want to define it, isn't important necessarily, but it's, uh, um, I think, I think we go about it. And the way we look at it in a in a way that's very um, outdated often, and uh, I think we've taken some of that original research of uh, Hodges and Richardson and uh, and and really twisted it, which is what everybody's done. And um, you know, so I think I think we've kind of come to that realization that you know maybe we can't affect the uh, you know the the. 0.5 milliseconds of you know delay in the transverse abdominus you know with with our basic hollowing exercises and you know it kind of sounds a little silly now but that's certainly the way we thought back then so so I'd say those are the two biggest things wow yeah Scotty you hit a lot of really good points there and I want to try to touch on all of them but um, let's kind of work from the front to the back here and and look at uh, you basically brought up a, a, a good point about whole body strengthening right one of the the 
things that we wanted to talk about tonight or this morning was basically why aren't physical therapy programs incorporating enough full body strengthening type education in their programs like you do a really good job of incorporating it into your your classroom right why isn't that just standard run-of-the-mill stuff like what you know how do you go about incorporating it versus what you know why should other programs kind of jump on board with you yeah, awesome question. So, uh, for your first part of your question was, well, why isn't it happening? And it isn't happening because, um, not because of you know lack of in, intention of the the professors or the or the um, the profession itself to 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 look at good quality training. I think we always um, you know we want to do the best that we can, but I think it's a lack of experience in the the methodology that you would take to to become a good strength coach and i, I mean re realistically that's how i look at training our physical therapists is as clinical strength coaches so not sport related strength coaches but clinical strength strength coaches which um to me is a, has a very different ring to it but um i could talk about that in a bit but uh um, to get at your question the the reason is that people aren't doing it Right. You know, it's it's not getting done because people aren't doing it. And I, I think that this is going to change because of that. I mean, obviously, you can see through um, through probably the last four or five years, uh, you, you really see a big push on uh, uh, anybody that you talk to, either social media wise or, or in conferences and, and uh, where people are really starting to realize that, um, you know, there's there's good quality training and then there's there's training that is much more. Uh, of the tr traditional therapeutic exercise sort of approach and people are realizing that you don't necessarily have to completely isolate a muscle or a particular movement pattern to get gains in function and and promote healing um with uh, uh with whatever's going on with this this isolation based approach and what you can do is you, people are seeing that you can actually achieve a greater overall physio physiological and um, movement based functional change with uh, with whole body strengthening and you still get at the therapeutic stuff and and you can kind of do an incorporation there um i, I guess the way that uh, uh that i look at it and probably one of the you know to get a little bit more to your second uh second part of your question was more on how how do you actually do this and and what's what what is it going to take to change the first part of that is that uh, it it would take experience so i think what you need is you need this big push that's out there where people are realizing this and clinicians are are actually incorporating these things and they're finding not only do does healing improve do the conditions improve but uh but they actually get some whole body uh, functional improvement, right? You know, similar to an athlete, right? And so, so the way I describe it is that, um, you know, most of the research on pain and recovery in, in almost every condition indicates that, uh, there's not a lot of difference between the different type of exercises you can do, right? So using low back pain as a, as a primary example, the research is, is very equivocal and it says, you know, it doesn't matter if you're walking, if you're, running if you're doing isolated strength training you're doing core stability training you're doing uh anything you you, you get similar type responses to uh, uh from a pain and a function perspective so 
in in essence, it doesn't necessarily matter from a recovery perspective. But then if we think of, you know, how we would train these people from a task perspective and say, hey, I want to get them to get to be better at climbing stairs or I want them to be better at uh, at lifting without developing uh, either, you know, whatever poor mechanics are or I want to improve their ability to do that without getting injured or, or whatever it is, walking isn't going to necessarily cut it. Teaching them how to lift with good good technique and, and building up strength that way is going to hit at a, a wide variety of uh, functional change that you don't get with uh, some of the isolation approaches or some of the more aerobic approaches. So, yeah, so, so again, if you're a that professor guy. that's not doing this stuff, essentially, you're you're really just kind of making excuses then, right? Because, I mean, I took therapeutic exercise as a class, and it was very isolationist, but we didn't do any of the stuff that, that I see a lot of your your students doing. So, I mean, could you walk us through, like, maybe one of your classes? Like, what what do you do specifically? What do you show them? What do you have them go through? Yeah. So, I mean, I do talk about... I think I'd be remiss to to not mention the the traditional therapeutic exercise stuff and say that it is an option because certainly I, I'm not saying that you never do isolation work and, and you know some people do take that uh, because I'm such a, a movement based strength guy that people say, say that I'd never uh, you know I would suggest you never do therapeutic the isolation stuff and. I mean, in any training program, there's a time and a place for that, right? So even in an athlete's training program or, um, you know, you look at bodybuilders particularly, they, they focus on, or they should be focusing on the major lifts. Um, but then isolation work is, is what targets where they want to get at. So I get the whole idea of targeting. So I do, I do talk to them about the, uh, you know, how to integrate some of their, uh, uh, uh kinesiology based knowledge and, and, uh, the arthrokinematics and, and the, the anatomy, functional and applied anatomy in terms of how you would do that for isolation approach. So, so I do do that as well, but I also break it into more of a uh, regional and a global approach, um, so that you have a, a, a wide range of options that you can go. But then what I also talk about is how, um, there's, there's quite a bit of research in particularly, you look at the shoulders, there's, there, there's quite a bit suggesting that it doesn't really matter which exercise you choose. You're still going to get the rotator cuff in there. So do you really need to isolate the rotator cuff muscles in order to do some rotator cuff training, right? So, so I'll talk about the concepts around that and uh, how you can strengthen a particular muscle or stretch a particular muscle, but that's not necessarily going to improve their mobility or their actual movement patterns. So, uh, so you actually have to get them training through, uh, through something whole body to get these whole body uh, um uh, improvements. So, so I start off really with that approach. And then, uh, once they kind of get a sense of it, I usually get maybe about half of them buying into it, uh, after about that point. And, and I get the other half later, by the way, but, uh, the first half is usually bought in and they, they bring the, everybody else in uh, for the most part later, but then it's a matter of doing it. It's a matter of getting out and saying, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to teach you the pattern of a hip hinge and how that turns into a deadlift and how that can turn into a kettlebell swing and how that relates to squatting. And then we'll teach you how to squat and we'll, we'll look at your, uh, your individual squatting responses and how each of your, uh, each of your clients are going to have different width and turnout of their, of their feet and, and, uh, how the depth is going to be limited by probably their hips, not necessarily that their knees are going past their toes and, you know, and, and then it's all of that's okay and so so we go through the point the the point of teaching and and so so hip hinging 
deep squatting and then overhead movement, looking at what the mobility is overhead and, and kind of getting them to the point where they can, uh, where they can look at, uh, scapular mechanics and shoulder mechanics from a very general perspective rather than the nitpicky little, you know, or is there a subtle little asymmetry and say that, you know what, let's just get people pressing and pulling and deadlifting and squatting. And so, I teach them how to do that themselves because a lot of them, if they've had exercise phys background or if they've had a lot of training background, they may not have the type of um, uh, techniques that, that I would typically teach. So I teach them my method and then then they do and they practice and I what I do in our our advanced exercise uh, prescription labs is I actually have a competency checklist so they have to uh, if for, for those that are uh, have the mobility and those that have uh, you know, don't have a disability that would prevent them from doing the full movements they have to show me their version of the full movement and that that means they may you know they may have other issues they have may have injuries and they need to work around those just like they would with a client to say okay well how are you going to do this for you which would be how you do it for a client so it might be restricting depth it might be you know changing the movement a little bit it might be changing the foot position it may be you know completely changing the exercise because of whatever disability they have so the, i think the big thing and and the big take-home message is that uh, in order for students to learn how to incorporate this into their practice they really have to see the benefit of it and see that they can do it because honestly uh, there like i said there's about half of them that don't buy into it at the beginning and out of the half that do maybe half of them are good movers and they they still need some practice in terms of doing this so once they get to the point where they can all do the exercises and and understand how the basic mechanics works uh then then they practice and they do it on themselves and they they, they coach each other and they they try it out on volunteer patients and and then you know, it's, it's not going to make them into a full-blown strength coach at the, uh, at the level of um, entry. Um, there's lots of work that, that continuing ed that they'd have to do and lots of practice that you're going to have to do in this, of course, because you can't, you know, you can't just take a course in being a strength coach and expect to be a good quality strength coach, right? But at least they get the basic movements down and they, what most of them recognize is that, is that A, it's feasible to do in any population. It's not, this isn't just for athletes and B, that they can do it, you know, and that they can actually go through this process and figure it out. So uh, for a lot of them, it's very eye opening uh, to to go through the process of learning how to do these movements and say, hey, you know what, I never thought I could ever do that. And and look, here I'm doing it and I can actually teach someone how to do it. And I have the competency to understand what it feels like so that I can teach it to someone else. Yeah, I absolutely love that approach. I think that's fantastic, you know, going through each kind of movement and kind of how they build off each other. And I especially really like the idea that even if someone's got a particular issue and they have to work around it, because I think that's clutch, you know, for them being able to experience and adapt and feel how the movement goes, they're going to be so much better at explaining that to a client when they're working with. And that's a good layout for that. And I know you said before, you know, kind of working on, you know, the strength and conditioning stuff, but is that like with the kind of the stuff that's on the strength and conditioning um, exam, is that stuff that you incorporate throughout your, through your educational materials and your didactic work? So you're talking the CSCS? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about the CSS, to be honest. Um, it's, I, I think it's a good starting point for people that don't have a lot of background in, in strength and conditioning. And, you know, it, it, 
certain things about the reps and sets and and that i mean they're they're very nsca specific and that's and that's fine um but they they have their model that is very much based on the uh the us athletic uh collegiate athletic model right i mean that's that's the i, I would say one of the uh the biggest ways that they they approach that and I don't know if that's necessarily the best model for clients. And um, I guess I'm saying that a bit mildly. I probably would say that it's not the best model for clients uh, in, in, in therapy. I think when, when you look at an athlete, there's very specific needs that they would have relative to their sport, but they're also at a much higher level to begin with. And, and so I think what it would be missing in looking at our strength and conditioning practices in therapy, like our clinical strength practices, is is the fact that we're, we're we might be dealing with someone who's active, but we're certainly not dealing with an elite level athlete who has a, a significant strength base and and potentially a movement base to them. So we have to back way up from that, and I think we have to back up to a, a stage b- before really where the NSCA and the CSCS is is. Uh, um, is really teaching people to do. So there's the NSCA and the CSCS does, uh, does a lot on periodization and, and very specific rep ranges and, and, uh, and loading ranges for different adaptations. And that can be, that can be useful for, for athletes, but, but certainly not for the, say, the general population where I think you need a much more specific strength based approach that would be much more like Bill Starr, you know, the five by five or starting strength or, you know, uh, the West side method and things, things along those lines that are much more um, whole body strength as the main focus of what they do rather than going off and doing, you know, a lot of, a lot of periodization type things. I think power is developed through strength, but you need that strength as a base and, and, you know, you're not going to get that with, with, uh, honestly doing low load, um, fast velocity uh training in a clinical population that's much more designed for athletes yeah no that makes that makes a lot of sense actually and you know kind of going back to i know scott asked a while back about you know incorporating this into a program but you know say i'm a professor or an assistant professor new professor and i've got a little bit of some strength background and you know my program that i'm at for some reason does not do a lot of incorporation into this and i want to change that how would you recommend, you know, is the best way to go about, you know, approaching the higher ups and even your colleagues to kind of help facilitate something like that? Yeah, good question. That that described me to a T when I when I started. Um, to be honest, I you know I had a lot of education um, on you know obviously I'd, I'd finished a PhD and you know I did do the uh, the CSCS and I did uh, ACSM certification and that. So I you know when I started as a professor, I felt hey I've got a pretty good amount of knowledge when it comes to training and exercise, and I certainly had a lot of uh, personal experience with training as well. Um, but to be honest, what ended up happening was, um, and it was sort of a bit of a fluke because I was kind of going down a different path when I first started relative to the way that I taught, um, the way that I taught students. Uh, what, what the eye-opening part for me was when I, I actually met, uh, through one of my students, I met a strength coach, a local strength coach who was coaching CrossFit. He was cro- coaching Olympic lifting and powerlifting and was getting into strongman and, and, uh, and, a lot of the strength sports and so I started training under him and and he's uh he ended up being my he's my uh um, co-founder of uh, strength rebels so this is Chad Benko I'm talking about so what ended up happening was I, I met him and started training and realized how much I didn't know 
you know, and realize that, uh, wow, you know, when you, when you actually incorporate some good quality deadlifting and squatting patterns, how much that fix all the niggling aches and pains much more so than, you know, some of the other stuff I was doing and my mobility was improving and all that. So, so it was an eye opening moment for me. I actually came into the strength game, uh, fairly late in my, in my career. I was already a professor. So, so this, this would be someone who, you know, that you're talking about that would be very similar that maybe doesn't have, has a little bit of a background, but wants to know more. The biggest challenge, and I think the biggest thing is, is really to buy into what this can do for you. And so, so, and this is the same advice that I give to any, uh, graduating student coming in that wants to get into this or a professor or anybody that wants to get in this, you have to go train. You have to go get in a gym. You have to partner with a strength coach, um, you know, or, or at least this is one of the better ways to go about doing it. It doesn't mean you have to, but I, I would recommend that you go find a strength coach that, that knows what he's talking about and, and, uh, has a good reputation and, you know, go and train under him and learn. And then if, and if you, if you felt you've learned enough, then go see someone else or, or keep training and, uh, and then bring it in and, you know, I've, I, I had to, I had to fight, to be honest, um, against the conventional model. And, uh, we, we just moved into a new facility about, uh, uh, a year ago. And so in the planning of that facility, um, you know, because I taught the exercise content, uh, I was asked by the planning people, which were all physios that are within our, in our department, uh, well, what kind of equipment you need? And, and honestly, I had to fight to get a squat rack. I had to fight to get a dead, deadlift platform. I had to fight to get, dumbbells heavier than 10 to 12 pounds I you know there were a lot of I had to fight to get a trap bar a safety squat bar all of these things um and and uh, eventually it's just a matter of you know if I believe in it that that I kept pushing and then we were able to get these uh these pieces of equipment and and um you know we're, we're better off for it because we have the opportunity now to do all these things in-house and and uh um so so it's not an easy road especially when you have people that um that are 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 a bit more of what we'd call the old or what I'd call old school where they're uh, they're old school physios that, that, uh, wonder why when someone never has to lift heavy in their daily life, why would you get them to lift heavy? And I mean, the answer is around efficiency and the answer is around functional reserve. And the answer is, is in the training process itself. Um, so once you buy that, once you get that, I think it's, uh, you know, it's just a matter of keeping pushing and, and, and that. So, so hopefully that it's not a concrete answer as the ins and outs of how do you get people to buy in. But, but I mean, the first thing is understanding it yourself. And then once you do that, I think everything comes. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great take and good advice on that. And I'm sure, of course, it's variable depending on the program and such as well. And, you know, I'm kind of curious, you know, Dr. Scotty, why do you feel that overall there is such a resistance to incorporating something like that overall across the boards within these programs? So it's a good question. One is a lack of experience with training. I, I think that's that's really number one. Um, the other thing, though, is if you look at um, the where where most programs that I've I've had exposure to, uh, where where they get their exercise information from, and a lot of it comes from, let's say, the ACSM as an example. Uh, sometimes in the NSCA, if if uh, depending on the program, but the ACSM uh, has very traditionally been a, an aerobic based organization, and this goes back to. Uh, uh, the days of uh, the Cooper Lab, Kenneth Cooper, and and the aerobic model, and and the 
and looking at the, the, the really good quality studies that were starting to come out even in the 70s and 80s, looking at the importance of aerobic type exercise in, in health. And at the same time as that, there's also the bodybuilding movement where people were starting to look at bodybuilders as, oh, maybe, maybe these could be ways for us to train but but what they would do is they would look at the isolation methods and say that well these are the advanced techniques so i think i think we're looking for things that that challenge our patients but i i think somewhere we missed the boat on on looking at these whole body movements so i think it, it it's a combination of the aerobic movement starting in the 70s and the traditional isolation based approach that has never really been challenged until recently um so honestly, I think the resistance comes from the fact that we just haven't been doing it yet. So as more clinicians do it, as more students are advocating for it, I think I think we're we're in for change. I think this is going to happen. It's just a matter of, uh, of of people figuring out the ins and outs of how to actually do this and how to incorporate it in. And and uh, what we honestly what we need. Um, and a colleague of uh, of mine up here in Canada just uh, um, I shared shared a memory on Facebook a, a while back from him that he said, you know, if if we're the movement and exercise experts as physical therapists, then why don't we have our own exercise guidelines? Why are we borrowing from everybody else's guidelines? And I thought it was amazingly insightful, that comment that, yeah, you know what, we need our own guidelines. We need some work out there, some information, whether it be textbooks or articles or reviews or something that, that says, well, how do you do this? How do you actually put these... Uh, uh, these strength training principles into practice for clinical settings. And uh, right now there isn't a good resource out there. Yeah, Scotty, you bring up a good point. I think, uh, you know, I, I kind of follow your path uh, more closely than I than I thought, I think. I, I'm working on my educational doctorate as we speak, and all I've got left is my dissertation, and I haven't lifted weights for about 10 years. It was probably uh, grad school was the last time I lifted weights. So this year I decided, all right, if I'm a physical therapist, I need to be able to talk the talk and walk the walk, so to speak, right? So I started lifting again with uh, Mike Eisenhart's Summer of Move, and um, it, it, it's made some drastic differences just in, in how I feel and the physiology behind, you know, my daily movements and 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 it, and I love it. It feels great, but I definitely feel like that's just a starting point for me, and I I need to learn more. I saw recently that you had uh, completed the CrossFit Level One certification. Um, can you talk about that a, a little bit? Is that something that that physical therapists should look into, whether they're CrossFit minded or not? Good question. Um, so you know, you look at what what resources are out there that you can learn from, and and I, I think as I as I mentioned before, the strength coaches, the ones that are that are in the strength sports, are are really a good start. Um, CrossFit being one of them, and I know there's lots of controversy. I, I think it's uh, people are as CrossFit stays around and and is showing some massive benefits to people. I think people are starting to realize that uh, that, that CrossFit isn't necessarily you know as bad as what other you know some other organizations would make it sound um, I, I like CrossFit I think it's got uh, some some it's a really neat study in physiology to be honest it's um, you know you can't pigeon it pigeonhole it to you know even in an individual wad you can't pigeonhole into aerobic or anaerobic or strength or power it's a combination of everything and and we, I think we don't know 
uh, enough about the methodology, but what we do know is it works. And this is the, the key message to answer your question is that, I mean, we're getting, we see with CrossFit, we see some massive changes in people, uh, from their, their physical capacities. And, and, and often that's just, you know, an example of good quality training, but a lot of their training methods fly in the face of traditional guidelines. Like you look at, you look at the way the, uh, just to use this as an example, the NSCA and their CSCS guidelines, you know, in terms of having specific rep ranges and having uh, specific ways that you would periodize your programs potentially, it, CrossFit flies in the face of that, but yet they're producing, you know, high level world class athletes that are, you know, that, that are able to compete in, in all of the other strength sports and that, that it provides a very good foundation. So I, I guess my view on the certification is similar to my view on, on CrossFit itself is that there, there's a lot that you can learn from that. We don't know enough, I think, in terms of what it means, but the one thing that is very good about their certification is that they actually take you through the movements and you actually have to perform the movements. And there's not many other certifications, starting strength being one of them. Uh, but there, there aren't many other ones out there where you actually have to show some level of competency in, in moving and, and analyzing other people's movement. Um, so, you know, this, this is one of the downfalls I think of the CSCS is that, I mean, the practical is definitely not that. So, so I think if you're looking to, develop some skill in coaching there's some very good things you can take from that awesome awesome all right i got one question from left field i've got a six-year-old daughter we have just started watching star wars for the first time <laughs> started her out with episode four five and six okay good all right and that's where we're at right now we're not going to go much further than that just yet we're going to try to take it all in maybe rewatch them again i'm not sure yet so, uh, favorite Star Wars v villain? Go. <laughs> oh man, uh, v Vader. Obviously, I mean that's the obvious answer, but I mean, really, it's Vader. I, I mean, classic, right? Yeah, definitely. I, ironically enough, that's her favorite character as of right now. Well, <laughs> so I'm good. a little concerned, um, <laughs> but she says she loves his music, so I'm okay with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting to to kind of see, you know, some of the, the the new stuff that's coming out. I I like a lot more than I thought I would. I'm really excited to see how it wraps up. Um, and, and then I, I I just I'm not sure after the first the original three. I'm not sure which direction I want to head with her. So we'll see. Well, you have to be determined. You, I mean, you do. You here's here's just... what I would do with someone who is jumping right into the Star Wars. You go, I think the very first one you watch is Rogue One. And, and the reason for that is that it, 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 I mean, it's a new movie with new technology that, you know, someone that's, that's getting into it now doesn't have to see all the cheesy stuff of the four, five, six and think these are terrible movies without really understanding what the movies are about. So you get them to see Rogue One first, then you go four and five. And then I'm, I'm sort of 50 50 on the machete order. So the machete order is you go four, five, and then you use two and three and potentially one if you can tolerate Jar Jar. Um, as Ooh, a that's a tough one. It is a tough one, right? So, so often I'll say skip one, but then you miss out on Mace Windu and you miss out on Darth Maul. And so, I don't know. There's, 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 like I said, 50 50 on that. But then you, um, but you use those as a flashback right after the reveal in Empire of, you know, Vader being, uh, uh Luke's dad. And then, um, you, you know, you get the backstory and then you jump to six, right? And then you can go f seven and beyond from there. So yeah. that'd be, that'd be my recommendation. Awesome. Awesome.
Man, nothing like Star Wars. Love it. And I'm curious, Dr. Scotty, what do you th- what are your thoughts on? I don't know if you've seen a lot of the theories that are coming out about know. you know episode. I've, seen, I've read them all, man. <laughs> man, what 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 are your thoughts on kind of how you know in terms of some of the big stuff that they talked about? You know, like who Snoke is, what's going to happen. I'm just curious, kind of what you think on that one. Uh, it, yeah, good, good question. I think there's a lot of mystery right now that will get, uh, that will get wrapped up, um, obviously with, uh, with the trilogy. Um, and I, I really like the idea that, uh, I know, I know some people are against it, but the JJ's coming back for nine and, um, you know, I thought he did a great job with, uh, Force Awakens. So, so I'm super, super excited to have him, him back for the, uh, for the final one. Uh, you know, it, it, it'll be some interesting twists that I don't think we know about. I think they're, they've probably, you know, everybody's speculated on every potential possible, uh, thing that could be happening and the way people are related and, and, you know, who's, who's parents and who's, you know, who, who's a Sith or who's a, who's a Jedi and, you know, all of this stuff. And, um, it, I, I'm just excited for the process to see, to see how it all plays out. Cause I think there's going to be some interesting twists and, you know, what maybe we've heard of them before, but what, what they end up choosing will be what, what, what it is. And I'm just excited for the process and to, to sit back and be, uh, be, uh, you know, uh, uh, kid listening to their dad tell a story, basically, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, these, these things are so exciting for me. Yeah, I know for sure. And I think it's interesting too, like when you look back at Rogue One's trailer, like it first came out and then you look at the actual movie, you're like, wait, that wasn't in there. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do that a lot. Well, they they did that. I mean, they've always done that, right? You take some pre-production stuff and you, you kind of guess as to what's going to be in there, what, what are going to draw people in. But um, yeah, it's, it's all good. You know, once you see the movie and, you know, even, even the terrible movies are still Star Wars. And, you know, if you're, if you're a fan, you're a fan, you know, even, you know, you can tolerate one because, you know, you, you take the good with the bad and, and, uh, um, you know, you tolerate Jar Jar so that you get to see Mace Windu and you get to see, uh, Darth Maul and you get to see Qui-Gon and, and that. So, you know, it's, it, even though the movie itself may be terrible, it's still a Star Wars story. And, and I actually love the cartoons for that reason too, is, um, you know, I, I watch with my kids, I watch the, the Clone Wars and, and Star Wars Rebels and, and, you know, there's some of the stories are really cool and some of them are just, you know, like neat little kids stories, but, you know, they, uh, they do add to the mythos of it and, and they add to the mystique as well. So, so it's, I think it's all good. Yeah, cool. And, you know, we kind of like to wrap up you know, each, each episode with kind of one question here. So Dr. Scotty, if you could change one aspect of physical therapy education, what aspect would you change and how would you recommend changing it? Mm, good question. So, I mean, obviously we've talked a lot about, uh, my biases towards strength and, and sort of the whole body strength approach and, and that, and, and, and I certainly say that's near the top of the list, but I think there's a, there's a bigger underlying approach that, uh, that, that we tend to of, avoid and and i almost say avoid on purpose that we we tend to focus on very short-term gains in in our in our education and and teaching our students how to be therapists and they think about short wins you know little wins of uh you know how quickly can i get them recovering and things like that but i think what we really miss out on is we miss out on the longer term approach and we 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 know that in most situations injuries heal people start to get better people if they can get off the couch you know they they improve strength and endurance and um but these are all short-term things. And I think where we miss the boat is we miss looking at the client as a lifelong client rather than a client just for this particular time in their life. And so I, I would like to see therapy become a lifelong 
type approach where we do see clients over and over again, even I know it's controversial, but even as a, you know, the yearly exam kind of example, but you know, if we can look at the big picture and say, take someone when they're 40 with, uh, with some knee pain or injury and think about what is this person going to look like when they're 80 and they can't get off the toilet. So, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of prep that we can do by thinking longer term than we do. So I'd, I'd say that's the biggest thing is we've got to think beyond the six weeks in the clinic. Awesome. Scotty, thanks so much for coming on to talk with us today. We really enjoyed it. Um, could you tell our audience where they can find you online and on social media? Yeah, so uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, Dr. Scotty Butcher on Facebook and uh, Twitter is at InkedProfScotty. Um, so those are probably the two best places. And then I have Strength Rebels and we are also on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Strength underscore Rebels. And, uh, and um, the other thing would be to find us on YouTube. We've got a huge uh, free resource of different exercises and our, our assessment and teaching approach uh, that, that I would teach my students. Most of it's online for free. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insight, Dr. Scott. It was a pleasure to have you on. It was certainly a pleasure to be on. You guys are, uh, you guys asked some good questions and uh, you guys are doing some good work. So I'm, I'm very happy to, to be here. Thank you. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.